Hey guys, this is Jules O'Loughlin. You're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Welcome back. Howdy. Welcome back. Where did I go? You know, it's been a week. It's been a week since you and I have chatted because, you know, it's another fine episode of the Cinematography Podcast. It is. Hey, who's on the show today? On the show today is Jules O'Loughlin, A-C-S-A-S-C. Those uh, letters after his name, of course, stand for the Cinematographer Societies that he's a member of, the Australian Cinematographer Society and the American Society of Cinematographers. Uh, Most recently, he shot the TV series Ms. Marvel and The Old Man, and you got to chat with him quite a bit about all kinds of stuff. Uh, But first up, it's close focus. What do we have to talk about today? So there is a Hollywood Reporter story by James Hibbard about Amazon's upcoming Lord of the Rings series. It's a TV series. You watch it on your television. You know, it's like the A-Team or uh, The Incredible Hulk or 60 Minutes. Except this series, the new Lord of the Rings series that is coming to Amazon in just a few months, apparently cost $465 million for one season of television, which I believe must be the world record like 10 times over. (laughs) My understanding, though, is that that number isn't fully tabulated yet and that's like the minimum number like it could be even more than 465 million like it could go up to a billion dollars a billion dollar tv series and here's the thing uh you're jeff bezos you're one of the richest people who's ever lived and you're worth many billions of dollars so you can uh, just do this i guess you can just do this and you and i are old enough to remember the kerfuffle around Waterworld when Waterworld came out in the 1990s and went ridiculously went way over budget and i feel like the budget became the story of Waterworld, and it kind of made everybody want to pre-hate it before it even came out people were rooting Uh, for that to fail they they, they couldn't wait to see how terrible that was it it was incredible i remember people like going that was the first time i remember going to the theater with people who were just looking to hate watch it. They were going to hate watch Waterworld. Yeah, and I actually remember a similar sentiment around Titanic just a few years later. <laughs> and and um, even Avatar. But <laughs> and, like- but Titanic, I feel like it turned it around. People just love that movie. And it's not that they hated Waterworld. Did you ever see Waterworld? You know, I saw it in the theater, actually, and I, I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it at all. It's a B movie, but, you know, it was, it was a decent B movie. It's, it, it's, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't break my top five Kevin Costner movies, but you know, it was probably number six. Yeah. I haven't really done a ranking of Kevin Costner movies and I, I don't know that I will do one. DOA. <laughs> uh, my favorite Kevin Costner movie, the big chill. Big. Chill. Anyway. So for, for all of you old enough to know, uh, literally you only see his wrists in the big chill. He's not, he was right. in it he's, he's and the, then got the dead body completely, completely cut out of it. So anyway, I think that there can be like a weird schadenfreude, that we experience around something that goes over budget or something that just has what seems like a world-shaking, enormous budget that you could have done any number of things with, but instead you played with your Hobbit toys with the world. 
but one of the things that's kind of interesting about it, and our producer Alana Cody pointed this out to me, there's a part of the article where it says Amazon spending will trigger a tax rebate in New Zealand of $160 million, which is $114 wow. million United States currency. And it's controversial in New Zealand, and I quote, as the government could end up on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars to help subsidize Amazon's Elves and Hobbits drama series. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, because it's so expensive and they get all these tax rebates because they're spending so much money, it might end up putting the government of New Zealand on the hook for uh, quite a bit of this very, very, very expensive endeavor of uh, Jeff Bezos's. Yeah. And, you know, just to put it in perspective, I believe in that same article, they have the number for what a season of Game of Thrones isn't even 25 percent of that. Game of Thrones, I think, was, yeah, it was like about $8 million an episode, so $80 million for a full season. And uh, I was once in a meeting about a show that I won't, that, that never got made, so I don't, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but it was one of those times where I happened to be in the room with big Hollywood players, and they were talking about something, and they were talking about doing this show for HBO, and they used Game of Thrones as an example, and they said that's $8 million per episode can we do this show for only $8 million per episode? And if I were to tell you what it was, you would say, of course, it is less ambitious than Game of Thrones or maybe on par ambition wise. And every all the underlings, including myself, we all looked around like the fuck is wrong with these people? Of course you could do it. And here we are. And Jeff Bezos, I mean, how many episodes is it in a season? Is it 10? That's in, that's insanity. <laughs> That means that they're spending $46 million per episode. Yeah. If it's 20 episodes, then they're spending over $20 million per single episode. Yeah. That's just... It's, it's a, it's and a it, time. And, and it's premium cable, basically. It's, it's Amazon Prime. So Amazon Prime doesn't do 20 episode seasons. It's going to be 10. So in other words, they're spending... A ton of money you know, on lobster. It's going to be like flown in lobster every day, every meal. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, it's probably going to be super ambitious. This is probably going to have huge VFX. It's, uh, well, and because Jeff Bezos is a fan, I have a feeling they're not going to be telling any of the showrunners no when it comes to, hey, we want to build this or we want to yeah. shoot this or we want to do this. Well, I've seen the trailer. It looks like there's a lot of visual effects. It looks like a lot of CGI. And CGI, if you do it a certain way, can be that expensive. And hey, God bless him. If all this money is going to like VFX people or the talented people who make these shows, because it's not full of big movie stars or anything like that that I know of. So that means that a lot of that money probably did go to like building sets or building VFX assets or whatever. So, hey, maybe they're doing it right. Still, it really does sound like uh, you could have cured world hunger, but instead you wanted to watch <laughs> hobbits fight. A little, little bit of that. Well, we're all going to get to watch it relatively soon. Very I'm soon. Sure. And I look forward to it. And I'm, and hopefully it'll be good. And again, I'm not letting the price tag, I'm not letting the sticker shock bias me against the show. Like, hopefully it'll be fun. Like the A-Team. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Which was surprisingly fun. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> yeah. And, and a fraction of the cost, even if you adjust for inflation. That's true. All right. So, Ben, let's get to the interview with Jules O'Loughlin. All right. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I am here right now, transcontinentally. You're in Australia with Jules O'Loughlin. Holy crap, thank you so much for coming on, Jules. Thanks, Ben. Um, actually, I'm not in Australia. That's where I live. 
I'm there occasionally. I'm actually in Vancouver at the moment. I arrived here just a few weeks ago doing a, a, a TV series here. Can you say what it is? Can you say what it is? Yeah, it's uh, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. We're doing it for, oh. for 20th Century and Disney+. Plus. It's, uh, awesome. it's a lot of fun, but we're a few weeks into it. It's a pretty full-on show, a lot, of, a lot of volume work, which is all the rage at the moment. Ooh, well, before we even get into it, we have spoken to Greg Fraser, who is, you know, arguably one of the inventors of, of the volume shooting for uh, The Mandalorian. But how do you like it? Uh, how has it developed? I mean, I, I feel like we talked to Greg about it when The Mandalorian season one was still going on. So how are you finding it? What are the awesome things and the limitations? Because I feel like it's probably the most recent humongous innovation in filmmaking that enables us to do just some incredible stuff. Yeah, and it's, uh, listen, it's a really interesting space in which to work. It, it's, I, I kind of find it a bit of a double-edged sword. It's, uh, it reminds me of the 3D days. I did a few 3D uh, features and it, on one side, it's amazing and what, what you can do there and the images that you can create. But on the flip side, it's very restricting. So the, the, the great positive is that it's a very controlled space. You can create fantastical worlds on the volume stage and shoot them kind of live, so to speak, like you're actually on location. And it's very controlled. You know, you know you're not uh, affected by issues of weather or location availability or, uh, say, issues with COVID. Uh, but the flip side is it can be very restricting. You, you are effectively in a box. And, and for those who don't know a lot about it, the whole space is uh, it's LED screens. And on those screens, you project, uh, say, the plate shots that you may have gone to, say, Jordan to shoot, or images of, say, a landscape on Venus that have been created by, say, something like software. Um, the yeah, big yeah. thing for me and for my fellow compatriot, Pierre Gill, who, who's the other DP on, on Percy Jackson, it's the ceiling. And I constantly say we're fighting the inverse square law. And by that, I mean that the lights are just too close often. And so the misnomer about the volume is that it lights the set for you. Uh, in some situations it can, but in most you have to augment your lighting when you're using the volume. And that means you've got to get your lights inside that box. And so it's a real dance of trying to make the lighting look naturalistic, but working in a way that you wouldn't choose to work or ordinarily wouldn't work unless you're in a really small soundstage or or in a location that's very restricting. And so that's my big thing. I can't often, you know, it's hard to get the lights far enough away. And so you're using other kinds of tricks to, to counteract that. So it's like any kind of technology in the, in the film business. It's like, I've never heard of any bit of technology where it's like, oh my God, this thing is just the best thing ever. And it's 100% foolproof and it's fucking brilliant. You know, like everything's, everything's got pros and cons. But the other kind of thing that I, I feel is, uh, well, gosh, I hope we don't go on that path, is that we never shoot on location again. I mean, the upside is maybe we never do a night shoot again. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. But to, to not go to all these fabulous locations that you, you have the chance to do as, as a filmmaker, that would be sad. But, you know, it does, that, that technology does give us the ability to go to really far out crazy places as a film crew and not really go there, but just step onto a stage yeah. and pull uh, some really amazing visuals up, you know, and, and make it work. So 
Yeah. So it's exciting. It's fun technology, but without any kind of new technology, there are occasionally sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah. Someone needs to write the textbook on how to do it. So let's talk about some of your very, very current work, because you have two extremely different shows that you shot on that are both being released. I know one of them was made a few years ago and it's Ms. Marvel and the old man. And honestly, it would be hard to think of two shows that are even more different, even though I guess there's a weird connectivity in that the old man uh, was directed by John Watts, who directed the new Spider-Man movies, but could not possibly be less Marvel-y in its approach to, uh, to storytelling. And then Ms. Marvel which is kind of, it's reductive to say it. It's kind of a YA story, like it's aimed sort of at teenagers, but it's super colorful, super kinetic versus The Old Man, which is extremely naturalistic and very grounded. And one of the things that I love about it is is it's setting such a great stage for such amazing acting performances by such terrific actors. So um, I know The Old Man, they shot that like two years ago, right? Yeah, we started the old man, or John Watts and Sean Porter started shooting, oh gosh, when was it? was October or November of 2019. Yeah, pre-pandemic. Yeah. So the old man is set in modern day America and it follows the story of Dan Chase, played by Jeff Bridges, who's an ex-CIA operative. And he's kind of been hiding for years and years or living under an assumed name. Uh, and he was heavily involved in operations in Afghanistan in the 80s during the Soviet occupation. And his kind of counterpart there was, was John Lithgow. Anyway, so the, the show takes place, as I said, in, in modern-day America. Dan goes on, on the run when his past catches up with him. He also goes to Morocco. And then it flashes back to the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan and the young Dan Chase is played by Bill Heck. So that the idea of the logistics or the location work on that show was that we would shoot half of it in LA, you know, from October 2019 to March of 2020. And then on March the 15th, I remember these days distinctly, March the 15th, we would fly to Morocco. Oh no. And do another couple of months of shooting in Morocco now, of course, on Friday the 13th of March, we, along with many other productions around the world, were closed down because of COVID. And from that moment, it was like, my God, what, what are we going to do? We're only halfway through the first season. And so, but then over the preceding months, production, the showrunners, John Steinberg and Dan Schott, had to decide what was going to go on with the Moroccan trip. We were due to fly to Marrakesh on, on the 15th, and of course that was cancelled. And so they decided in the end that they would shoot the remainder of the season in California, up in Santa Clarita, the desert around Santa Clarita, Blue Sky Ranch. And so they said about building uh, Afghan sets up there and various other sets. And when I returned to the show in October, that's exactly where we went to do this. And, and I was, I, I've got to be honest, I was so bummed that we weren't able to go to shoot in Morocco. But fortunately, we had a fantastic uh, VFX team led by Eric Henry. And the first time I actually saw those finished renders of, of what we had done in California and the way it had, it had stood in for Afghanistan, I was just blown away what those guys had pulled off. It is extraordinary. I mean, it looks as though you are in Afghanistan. Man, they nailed it. They, those guys just did such an awesome job. And so while it was really sad that we couldn't get to Morocco and all the, the great experience that that would have been, um, we had a, a fantastic time in, in Santa Clarita. 
And of course, yeah, so we shot from, we came back in October and we shot through to December. But of course, Jeff, partway through that second iteration of the season, was diagnosed with lymphoma. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And so he only, I think he had about a month and a bit with us before he had to leave and go into treatment. Yes. And so then we were faced with what we could shoot and we did quite a bit of stuff with his stunt double and we did a little bit of face replacement of some of that work. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, there was a little bit of stuff that I shot that, that they had face replacement on. I kept noticing, like, one of the things I love about the show is that as much as I love a good Matrix movie or something like that, the fights in this don't look like balletic John Woo movie fights. They look like two people trying to murder each other. Yeah, that's right. They're down and they're dirty, <laughs> man. They're in the gutter. Absolutely. And Jeff's doing, listen, i got to say that Jeff did a lot of that work. A lot of that work. And he's got a fantastic stunt double who looks that's uncanny. Well, yeah, I mean, but I would watch those fight scenes and I was like, a lot of them are also done with, uh, they're not oneers, but they're minimal editing. That's right. And all the few of them are oneers and we do the old Texan or cowboy switch. And of course we have hidden cuts in, in a few of those oneers. And, but the whole idea of them was to make them as visceral and as real uh, as possible. And for the audience to hopefully believe that that is their character Dan Chase the old man fighting and of course Jeff Bridges you know that's the beauty of cinema we put you know the contract that we have with the audience of hopefully we've done our job well then they believe what they're seeing but I gotta say Jeff did a, quite a lot of that work uh he was remarkable and the good news is we've uh it's been picked up for season two it's been greenlit so that oh congratulations yeah yeah so are, are you going to be back on it next season yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool. Isn't it? I mean, it's just so kind of gritty and real and you get the likes of Jeff and Amy and John Lithgow yeah. and you just can't take your eyes off those guys. They, they are. Every performance is, is just so solid. And also like we talked about uh, Bill Heck, the guy who plays young Jeff Bridges is so good without feeling like he's doing an impersonation. Now, from a cinematography standpoint, did you do anything to light him or lens him or favor one side versus the other to make him feel more like Jeff Bridges? Or, I mean, as an audience member, I just kind of accept it's, you know, the Jeff Bridges character is a young man. But did you do anything at all to kind of... It's not at all. No, nothing done lighting or lens-wise. That was all thrown in Bill's lap. But these guys, you know, the, yeah. their, their younger selves, the, these actors are so good and the story is so interesting that certainly it works for me and I hope that it works for the audience. And listen, all the feedback is this show is really successful. It's done super well for FX and by all accounts, people are really enjoying it. So, you know, I, hopefully that's the kind of job done to an extent. It can never be perfect, right? But yeah. it's filmmaking, you know, it's you've got to embrace the imperfections. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's the willing suspension of disbelief. I, I think as a viewer, it's not hard for me to say that's young Jeff Bridges. I'm just, I was just curious if there was anything that you would do to aid in it. I feel like he embodies it as does the gentleman who plays young John Lithgow. Um, I, I also wanted to talk to you because I think it's in, in contrast in a way to Ms. Marvel, which is a show about visual ingenuity in so many ways. With The Old Man, so much of this show is like really well-crafted, well-acted dialogue scenes between amazing performers. All of these actors, are it's just a murderer's row of amazing actors. And in those moments, it's never not visual. It's always intriguing to look at. But how do you go about finding those moments and saying like, here's how I'm going to support the actors and then what do you do? 
Well, as cinematographers, we do, uh, well, for me anyway, you tread softly. You know what those big moments are in the script and you've just got to be super respectful and to give the actors the space, you know, yeah. and, as, and as much as possible, don't impinge on that space with the technical. So I, I guess at first instance is you just got to be ready. You know, you've got to, you've got to work with the stand-ins and you've got to ensure that the, the set is lit and the, and the moves are worked out. And yeah. this was the type of show where we could do that. I mean, everything we shoot now, there's, got, there's an element. You have to be good and you've got to be fast. That's with everything. You know, the schedules on every show, they're always, um, they're, they're always challenging. But this was a show that didn't have that air of it's all about the schedule. And it, and it kind of shows through in the way that we shot it. It's, it's not a coverage fest. You know, we're really trying to craft the show in, in a particular way to kind of lean into a certain rhythm. Getting back to, to your specific point of the actors, I don't know. I mean, part of that just, I think, comes with experience of just recognising those moments where you just want to support the actors and give them the space and to communicate, for me as well, to communicate that to my crew, to go, hey, guys, this is one of those moments, a really important scene. And these guys are going to be acting their chops off. So let's just kind of keep all the talk and all the other stuff that goes on and set to a minimum and respect that space. But most crews, certainly this crew in that I worked with in Los Angeles are super experienced and they know yeah. about those moments as well. And the other thing is, Ben, is that you've got these actors also who are super experienced, really professional, and they know what they have to do. But they also know what we have to do. And I think everyone is working in lockstep just to, to make it a really great experience. And a shoot like that is, or any shoot is all about ebbs and flows and experienced actors and experienced crew know those ebbs and flows. And that there are times to, uh, you know, you can have a bit of a joke on set or things get a bit light. And there are moments where you've got to tense up. And it's like, right, this is why we're really here for this moment. And we're going to make it as good as possible. And everyone seems to know those, you know, those moments. So let's move to Ms. Marvel. And I ask a lot of the people who are kind of working in so-called peak TV, you know, it's like uh, the old man is definitely kind of a peak TV show. I know it's made for FX, but most people are probably watching it on Hulu. And Ms. Marvel is only available on Disney Plus. And it's part of the Marvel universe, but it's like what they're doing on Disney plus with the Marvel shows, be it WandaVision or Loki, each one kind of feels like it gets to have its own world. And Ms. Marvel is, is no exception. So tell me like, what were the marching orders on Ms. Marvel look wise? Cause it's so colorful and so inventive and, and so fun in its, in its basic instruction. Well, that's it. Fun. Like Kamala's uh, personality, you know, lean into her personality and have fun with it, you know, move the camera, uh, have colorful lighting, uh, make it uh, expressionistic and ultra real when it had to be, and then real when it needed to be. But it's, um, it's have fun with it. You know, I mean, the audience for this show, you know, a younger kind of audience and a female, strongly female audience, absolutely. Um, Muslim audience, you know, South Asian audiences. I mean, this show is massive at the moment in Pakistan. They're showing Miss Marvel in cinemas in Pakistan. Uh, my, my, yeah, my director, Shamin Oboid, 
uh, Chinoy, who's is, is extremely well regarded in Pakistan. She's won two Oscars and seven Emmys for her documentary work. She uh, arranged with the government to have Miss Marvel shown in movie theaters because Disney Plus hasn't arrived in, in Pakistan as yet. And that country is going crazy for this show. And, and that's an American-born girl of, of Pakistani heritage and, and yeah. all the wonderful kind of uh, cultural things that, that have been infused into the show and, and people are really responding to it. And it's fun, you know, it's not gritty realism by any extent. So what are the visual rules for a show like this? Because it really does feel, it, it, it is covered, there's coverage, but it feels very constructed. Like it feels like it's covered so that we're going to go out on this shot and then transition to this thing. And then we're going to do a graphical thing here. And then we're going to be in another scene. Like so much of it is, it feels uh, really thought through how the, the show would be constructed. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the overall planning for the show it was originally, um, well, Ep 1 was directed by Dylan Bilal and that cinematographer, Rob Bregg. They came up with an overall plan for the show. It was, uh, there weren't any kind of hard and fast rules. It was more about Kamala and leaning into her powers and leaning into the fun of her personality and letting that infuse itself into the camera work uh, and into the lighting. And, and I guess as much as possible, we, we just want it to feel energetic. We wanted to, to bring energy into the, into the camera work, as long as it fed into the narrative, you know. But certainly for Epps 4 and 5, Shamin is, uh, as I said earlier, pa Pakistani documentary director, very highly regarded in, in that country. And we wanted to lean a little more into her documentary background. So we, to that end, we did do a lot of kind of handheld work and a lot of observational work, especially with the massive partition scene that, that you see at the end of episode four and, and, and five. And so it was kind of more leading into her background and, and her way of working and, and making those episodes feel as though they were part of the show as a whole, but making them also a little distinct. And they're distinct anyway, because we, at the beginning of episode four, we travel back we travel, we fly to Karachi, you know, we go to Kamala's, uh, where, to where her family, her extended family live, you know, so by that nature alone, where that's going to, the show's going to look a little different. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I was going to ask, it's like, how do you make it your own when it's got to fit into this whole thing? But it's like that story arc is so separate from the rest of the story. That's right. I mean, we don't, we don't want to depart from the show in any massive way. You know what I mean? But but I've, yeah. I've kind of learned over the years with, uh, certainly with doing television that, you know, you're working with the same characters and the same kind of story, uh, and in this case, the same powers, you know, so you can afford to, to take a slight deviation with the episodes and the audience will go with you as long as you, you're doing it well and you're pulling it off. For the audience to go, oh my God, I'm in a completely different show. You've got to make a really drastic departure. And so we were able to kind of pull away somewhat from the show and drive it in a new direction, much like the narrative is driving in a, in a new direction. Kamala's going to Karachi to meet her family. And then in Ep 5, she travels back in time to partition 1947 India. So, you know, you already had that deviation in the story. The other great thing that we had at our fingertips was that 
you know, in EPS 1 to 3 and 6 shot in Atlanta for Jersey. But in our EPS, we, we went to Bangkok because we needed some locations that could easily stand in for Karachi and that could stand in for India. And at that time, it was at the height of COVID. We, we started shooting in. I was going to ask you, yeah, because COVID, India got hammered right around then, I think. Yeah, that's right. So we, we started in January of 2021. Oh man, you're like right, right in it. <laughs> That's right. Into May, May of 21. And at that time, Thailand was kind of similar to Australia in the way it was handling COVID. They, they had very strict kind of quarantine rules. And so the COVID numbers were really low at the beginning of our time there in January, but they did explode midway through April and we started to lose locations and we started to get restricted. And, but we got through to the end and we were able to shoot in just some amazing locations. Um, and so we were lucky to be able to go there and pull it off. And I think it shows on the screen. So let's go back and talk a little bit about your career. I always like to know from everybody, what was the moment in your life where you realized cinematography was a job, an occupation, and it was something you could pursue? It, it wasn't, I think, until I was about 19 or 20. But that was the moment where I went, oh my God, there's someone who actually shoots this stuff. There's someone who's responsible for the camera. Uh, there's someone responsible. I think they kind of do the lighting as well. Uh, but that was the moment that the kind of penny dropped for me, which is funny because I came from, from a very early age. I'm the, I'm the youngest of 10 children. Oh, and, wow. uh, yeah, I grew up in, uh, out, of, out of Sydney and I had a, a father who was a barrister. He was a lawyer. And uh, my mom, who, who brought up 10 kids, but who died for when I was quite young, when I was eight. We went on a family holiday in, in the mid-70s. My brother was rowing in the, uh, in the World Cup. He was, uh, he was oh, the, the Australian eight and uh, rowing the World Cup in Switzerland. And we went on this uh, family holiday through Europe like the Griswolds, but with 10, <laughs> oh, I think it was about eight of them. Oh my gosh. And my old man gave me a camera. And from that moment in my life, I started taking photographs. And then the other thing, like any young kid, I was interested in movies, but there was a moment, bear in mind, I'm the, I'm the youngest of 10. So by the time it comes to me, I mean, I'm not even sure whether the parents know, my parents knew that I existed, you know, Jules is off doing something, who knows where he is back in those days. But I used to go to the movies a lot on my own from a very young age and I saw 2001, I think it was at the, it was at the Roxy in Sydney. And that film had this incredible impact on me. I had no idea of what it was about, but I knew it affected me in a really powerful, powerful way. And, and from that moment, I started kind of watching films and of course loved them and was engrossed in them. And, and I did my photography and, but I never put the two together until my early twenties, where I kind of realized that photography definitely had something to do with movie making and it was called cinematography. And then who was this person called the cinematographer and what did they do? And so that, that's kind of when the penny dropped for me. And did you uh, pursue going to film school or what, what was your path to starting to pursue it? Hell no. That's so my old man was a, uh, he was a great supporter of the arts, but uh, he didn't believe in, in you working in the arts and and so I started out doing various things. I, I went to university and, and I started commerce and I did that for two years and absolutely kind of loathed commerce. But I fell into, I had some mates who were working in the futures exchange in Sydney. And so I got a job as a floor trader and I did that 
for some years. I put myself through law school, but there were a few moments there where I kind of wanted to leave. There was one moment where I wanted to go and get a cadetship with, um, with the Sydney Morning Herald, one of our big newspapers in Sydney, uh, in Australia. And I wanted to get a cadetship as a photographer, but the old man kind of talked me out of that. And then there was a moment where I thought about film school, but it was always like, you've got to get a, you know, you've got to get a proper degree and you've got to have a proper career and, um, and you support the arts, but you certainly don't work in the arts. And it wasn't until my old man passed away in my late twenties that I had this kind of come to Jesus moment uh, where it was like, my God, what am I, what am I doing? I'm working, I'm a futures trader and I've got a law degree. Uh, and should I go into law? But I, I'm not interested in, in any of that. And so I threw in that career, I metaphorically ripped up my law degree and I went to a, a kind of a smallish film school in Sydney, but I had my eyes set on getting into the National Film School, the AFTRS, the Australian Film Television Radio School. And at that time, they only took four students in each discipline. So they took four cinematographers, four directors, four producers, four production designers. So it was very, very competitive to get in. And I did a few things in the, in the couple of years leading up. I, I started attending their short courses. I started helping and assisting on their, on some of the projects that they were doing. And I got known to some of the lecturers there because I knew getting in, I didn't have any short, really, I had two short films under my belt and I hadn't been shooting for that long. And I wasn't going to get in on the basis of, of having a bit of experience in the film industry. So I knew I had to, to be known to the lecturers and they, they had to know that I was super serious about about what I wanted to do. And so when I applied, I applied with a, a stills portfolio, which by that stage, um, you know, I'd been shooting for many years stills and I'd done a lot of traveling uh, and got into the National Film School. And that was kind of, that was kind of the beginning for me. Uh, and I came to it at, at, at the, I, was, I think it was about 31 by the time I, I graduated. But by that stage, you know, as any mature age student knows, if you decide to do something at a later age, you have a career kind of move, then you become single-minded and incredibly focused. And that's what I was, you know. I, the, I knew I had to get into that film school. Failure was not an option. And I got in and then a year out uh, with some of my fellow students, we shot a, a movie, a war movie called Kokoda, which got, a, got us a lot of notice in Australia. And then that kind of, I guess, launched my career in Australia. Yeah. And it's interesting because we've talked to a lot of Australian DPs and it's Australia has, you know, such a such a vibrant industry of its own. I, I always bring up uh, there's a documentary I saw at Fantastic Fest some years ago called Not Quite Hollywood. That's about the exploitation films of Australia. But it's where you get people like George Miller. Yeah, we had a pretty amazing film industry, really kind of landmark films, films that we all saw as Australians. But was it a real career? Could you actually make money out of it? Could you pay the mortgage and send the kids to school, you know, and put food on the table? Uh, I don't know. When Certainly when I was coming out of film school, it, it didn't feel like, like that. It felt as though it was going to hard to kind of break in. And there was, that's, that's the one thing they, they don't teach you at film school, right, is how do you break into the industry? Yeah. You know, what do you have to do? Who do the people that you have to call? Certainly in the feature landscape, when I came out of it, if it hadn't been for those guys that I went through film school with and a few really lucky breaks, back then it was kind of like, how do you break into shooting movies? No one's going to give you a movie to shoot 
unless you've actually got one on your resume. And back in that time, which was a 2004, and I, and I would say the years, I think now it kind of feels as though it's more achievable. You know, because I think there are a lot more Australians too making it in, in Hollywood or making it internationally. And, and sure. the, the young guys and girls at film school kind of see that and they go, oh, this is, you know, you could actually have a career doing this. You know, because I speak to a lot of young people about that thing about how do you make it? You know, what do you have to do to break in? And I don't know, my best advice is, you know, you got to try and be at the right place at the right time. So open yourself up to as many possibilities as possible. Go to as many events, try and meet as many people in the film industry. Go to film industry parties, you know, join those news groups and newsletters. And, you know, it's like, I don't believe so much in luck. I believe that you get luckier by opening yourself up to opportunities. Well, I hate to end it there because I feel like we could talk, uh, you know, we could definitely talk about Angel has Fallen. We could talk about Black Sails. You, you have a lot more, but hopefully we'll have you back on the show after you do your next series anytime you want to. But before we go, uh, where can people find you? I mean, obviously they can see your work any number of places, but where can, do you have a website or anything people can check out? Yeah, I've got a, a website, which is JulesOLachlan.com. And I'm on Instagram at Jules.Olachlan. Excellent. I am subscribing right now. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and amazing work. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Great to talk to you, Ben. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. So that was Jules O'Loughlin. Thanks for being on the show. And if you guys out there listening uh, want to go see some of his most recent work, go watch Ms. Marvel on Disney+. And The Old Man, which is a FX series, is streaming right now on Hulu. Well, Ben, you know what time it is right now. Uh, it is, I don't know. You tell me. Uh, it's time for the dad joke of the day. No, I'm Oh, kidding. no. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, boy. Uh, no, it's, it's time to pay the bills. We have to thank our friends over at Aperture, maker of fine professional grade LED lights. And the product that I really want to feature this week is called the P600C, which is a very large extremely bright light panel essentially it is a pixel mapped it's got four quadrants so to speak so it can do all sorts of like high-tech effects but it is also just big and bright and high quality uh, rgb ww so it's like you know full colors it's very similar to uh some of the the other professional level panels out there but it's even brighter it's one of the brightest panels uh in existence and it doesn't break the bank it's also a, a fraction of the cost of some of the big ones and i will say that there are dozens and dozens of them in stock at hot ride cameras right now we recently received a shipment uh, with cases there's a version that includes a case and if you were thinking about making some giant big epic production and you wanted a big key panel light uh, you could do a heck of a lot worse than the aperture p600c and it is an incredible incredible value so take a look if you need a bright panel light especially if you have a stage or something like that i know a couple of stages nearby that is that are pre-lit now using these aperture panels and they're they're really really impressive can I say, like, the first time I ever heard of Aperture is when they started advertising on, on here. And now Aperture is everywhere. Every shoot I've done is stocked with so many Aperture lights. And even uh, just yesterday, uh, my own beloved Corridor crew dropped a uh, YouTube video where they tried to compete with the sun. They tried to create the same lux as the sun using entirely <laughs> Aperture lights. So, wow. Uh, 
So it was like, wow, this is the most interesting commercial for Aperture I've ever seen. We're trying to outpower the sun. It's pretty interesting. Nice. And now, short ends. So Ben, it's uh, it's short end time. What is your pet obsession this week? Well, it's it's kind of a sad thing, but I I really feel like it's this is the right place to talk about it. We never had Tom Richmond on the show, which is really our loss. Tom Richmond is a cinematographer who passed away this week. Actually, uh, David Mullen, who's been on the show, he he posted about it on Facebook, and I'm a fan because he shot a lot of like 80s B movie stuff, like Jim Wynorski's Chopping Mall, uh, Straight to Hell Returns for Alex Cox, some uh, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker for oh, King yeah, Everyone, yeah, yeah. yeah, classic. Like he shot a lot of really awesome movies and then kind of hit a big stride in the 90s. And he shot movies like Roger Avery's Killing Zoe and mm. Little, Little Odessa, Love in a 45, Mr. Stitch, Mother Night, which I would say is uh, the best Vonnegut film adaptation ever done. And uh, Slums of Beverly Hills, Wild Horses. Like, oh, yeah. Like he shot so many just amazing movies. Just a really prolific, talented guy who made so many of the movies that made me, <laughs> you know, like a really, really influential, amazing DP. And according to everybody who I, I saw online kind of talking about him, just a really uh, awesome dude. And uh, anyway, I, I just thought it should be mentioned. Tom Richmond, rest in peace. Terrible loss for the community. So, uh, yeah, it's a real bummer. Uh, he shot palindromes for Todd Salons. I always love it when anyone who should, anyone, Todd Salons is such a specific quirky ass filmmaker. Anyone who got to shoot something for Todd Salons yeah, definitely has a place in film history for me. Uh, one of the most overlooked movies, I think, of 2006 was Right at Your Door. Uh, I loved oh, Right at Your Door. It's, really? uh, it's it's brilliant. And if, if you have not seen Right at Your Door and you want to see something like, uh, I know... I think it was the B camera operator from right at your door pretty well. He's a, a client over at, uh, at Hot Rod Cameras and uh, a dear friend. I've known him for a very long time, uh, Joseph Sattel. Uh, Joseph Sattel worked on right at your door, and he told me, like, I think a ton of that movie was lit with, like, Christmas lights and all kinds oh, of wow. cool stuff like that. So it's like, no, yeah. Uh, he really, also shot really, really good. House of a Thousand Corpses for Rob Zombie. I mean, like, look, just look at the versatility of this person. Really uh, amazing cinematographer. So, uh, you know, this week... While you're trying to find something good to watch, maybe find something that uh, the Tom Richmond shot. So, Ilya, yeah, what is? Sure. Let, let's bring us out of the funk. What's what's your short end this week? Uh, my short end this week is uh, something that is definitely sort of going around on social media. People are talking about it. You can watch it on Hulu. Uh, it's an FX series called The Bear, and The Bear is set in Chicago. It is a television series all set in a restaurant. So I know immediately, Ben, it should be your, your kryptonite, but no, no, well, before, I, I've, I've actually seen a few episodes. It's really good. Well, uh, I was going to say, it feels sort of like the like Chicago bastard cousin of like succession. It feels like, you know, it's not exactly cut from exactly the same cloth, but I have a feeling that if you're into succession, if you're into uh, rapid fire dialogue, if you're interested in anti-heroes and FX has made, you know, they, their brand is anti-heroes. That, that's what they're all about. I think you might like the bear. It's got a lot of inside kitchen lingo and stuff like that. And there's some very honorary characters in there. It's a, it's a blue collar show, but it's also about sort of like worlds colliding and healing and, and tragedy and all kinds of other stuff. So uh, I've been binging it. I, I've basically through the entire season now, and I think I've only started like three days ago so it's uh yeah it's it's worth watching if you need a new television series it's on fx uh it's on hulu you can stream it right now it's called the bear 
Very cool. Well, amazing work. Yeah, I, I have seen the show. I know that uh, just because it's about food doesn't mean I don't want to watch it fundamentally. Probably my favorite scene in it is, is the one with uh, where, where they're at uh, the French Laundry and Joel McHale is kind of leering over our hero and telling him he's a terrible chef and he should quit. And it's like, I'm watching it. I'm like, why, why be so uptight about cooking food? Good God. But yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's a hard scrabble show. I would call it hard scrabble. Hard scrabble works. It's definitely not not for the faint of heart if you are offended by language because there's all kinds of language and insults and basically people kind of acting horrible to each other for big chunks of the, the early episodes and there's sort of a camaraderie that develops and builds and I'm not going to give anything away but if you want something that is not exactly like something you've seen before but enough like something you've seen before that you, you might like it if you are into the other sort of stuff you, you see on FX or HBO uh, The Bear might be up your alley. I think Super it takes a couple yeah, I think it takes a couple of episodes to really catch its stride, but it's been fun. It's been good. I, I can't wait to watch the last episode of the season tonight. Well, cool, man. I think that that about wraps us up. Who should we thank tonight? Hey, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, who is uh, working like a mofo, working, 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 you know, hard scrabbling it out right there. Yeah, hard yeah, scrabble. Exactly. Living her hard own version scrabble. of the bear. There's a TV show <laughs> just about Alana Cody working her ass off, getting us amazing interviews. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. It's like, you know, her with a Bluetooth headset, you know, yelling at people inside of a car somewhere. Yeah, that's it's, that's, it's kind that's of like it. Jerry Maguire, but it's like lots of snap zooms. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Kay's, hey, uh, thanks for this music. Uh, hey, yeah, hey, hey can, I, can I say something about Kay's? Uh, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't say what it is, but Kay's... Okay. Uh, well, then. Dr- Kay's director. I want to tell you something about Kay's, but I can't tell you what it is. I, I can't go into details. I can't get specific. But Kay's blew my, blew me away. Uh, he directed kind of a long form ish project for somebody that we both know, and uh, I saw an early cut of it. And you know, you know the old saying: uh, no uh, movie is ever as good as its raw footage or as bad as its first cut. So I knew I was looking at an early cut. Uh, holy crap! He he just did an amazing job. He directed it. Uh, he composed the music for it. He did the color grade for it. And he did a ton of VFX on it. <laughs> wow. So, All right. so the person that we know who uh, who hired him to get this got basically, you know, five, five, five guys for the price of one. <laughs> and uh, I'm really uh, I'm really excited for him because I think it's uh, one of the best things he's ever done. Oh, all right. As a director. I, I, that, well, uh, exciting. I, I, I can't wait to find out more. I'll have to hit him up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who I think we actually made his job pretty easy this week. And not, yeah, not too yeah, many had, ums and uhs. Big, big meaty gaps. Like when we had to take a pause, we took a big pause so he could see it on the waveform. Really? That's right. Yeah. There are easier ones and harder ones, Ben, but I think this might have been one of the easier ones. I don't know. What do I know? I think so, too. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. You know, when, when you ask like all the people on a crew and, you know, on the second to last day of production, last day of production, and you're like, yeah, you know, this is going to be one of the good ones. You know, what do you think? And they're kind of like, yeah, but you never can tell. And it's really true when you're on the crew and you do do the whole production and you think, wow, this is, we really got something great here. And then you see it later and you're like, holy crap, I can't believe I worked on that. I can't believe that's how it turned out. And then later when it's like, you know, oh my God, this is such a stinker. And it becomes this massive, like, you know, uh, fan thing. You, you never know. You have no idea when you're on it's set, true. when you're working, what, what's going to come out. You don't know if the, it's going to be a colossal turd, polished turd, or uh, the next the Academy Award winner. The single biggest clusterfuck I ever worked on turned out pretty good. Who knew? It was uh, Bloodsport 2. Bloodsport 2, and it was like uh, there was a crew walkout. 
There was almost a mutiny. The director did not direct. It was a sloppily made thing. Now, they had a great fight choreographer in Philip Tan. They had a great DP in Jacques Heitken. And between those two people and, uh, I would say, a reasonably capable cast, mostly capable cast, the end product wasn't you know, going to win any Academy Awards, but it held together, and it was quite watchable, and it was fun. It was what, what you want out of a blood sport movie. But working on it was like, it was like uh, living in anarchy. <laughs> Well, your testament that you pulled through, that that you didn't die, and the movie got released, and yeah, it probably made a couple of bucks by now. Probably by now. Anyway, so, uh, but I think that that about wraps us up. All right, Ben, where can people find you if they want to get more Ben Rock in their life? I mean, and who doesn't? Definitely go to benrock.com. That's where you can find me. And uh, all my social media stuff is on there. You can check out my reel. You can uh, read the bio that I had to write about myself. Don't like writing bios about myself, which probably comes through in the writing. But, uh, you know, check it out. Uh, And you can find all my social medias there. Befriend me on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook at your will. Say hi. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. You can, uh, you know, uh, hit us up for all kinds of camera and lighting and other production equipment. That's where you'll find me most most times. Uh, all right. So, Ben, uh, I think that just about does it for us. You got you to sign off. You got something to say? I do have something to say. Let's. I want to see if this person is actually listening. You ready? Ready. So this guy I know, Taylor Hammerslough, who I was actually his mentor because we both went to UCF in the film program. Moved to Atlanta, and he mentioned to somebody that he went to UCF on a film set that he was on in Atlanta, and a guy in the camera department said, oh, that's where Ben Rock went to school. I listened to his podcast, and then he talked about the podcast. His name, I believe it is pronounced Don Stelmasek. I hope I got your name right, Don. I hope you heard all the way through to the end of the episode, and uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. I was like, uh, hey, do I does do we know each other? And Taylor was like, no, he's just a big fan of the podcast. Hmm. Okay. Big enough that, that when you mentioned UCF, he's like, that's where Ben Rock went to school. That's weird. <laughs> that's, that's a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we'll certainly find out now if he's actually, you know, listening to the podcast. Yeah. I'm deeply flattered. So thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Don. Uh, let, let's end the show. Thanks for listening. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Bye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.